Well, this morning, um, we are back in our study of 1 Corinthians. And so, if you've been with us for any period of time, you recognize that we took a break from our 1 Corinthians study to march through an Advent series, just the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so, we did that, and now we are finished with that, and we now get to kick off the new year by going back to our 1 Corinthians study. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians 10. That's where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians 10, and if you are using one of the blue provided Bibles near you, that's going to be on page 957. Page 957. It's going to be helpful for you just to be looking at a Bible, whether that's your own Bible, whether it's that blue Bible, or even a Bible on your phone or tablet, uh, just because we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the text. So what we try to do each week is, is let the text have the primary voice here. So we are going to read... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to go verses 1 through 22. Starting in verse 1. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new year. And we thank you that we get to start it by gathering here, looking at your word, singing 
songs of praise to you, confessing our sin to you, being assured of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, and then, Lord, participating in the Lord's table. Thank you for these gifts. There's no greater way to start the year. And, Lord, as we gather as a church, we pray for those who are battling physical ailments or those who may have received bad news this week. God, we pray that you would comfort them. We pray for healing. Lord, we pray that as we as a church head into 2023, that we'd be a people that care for one another, that weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray that we'd be a church that grows in our discipleship, that grows in our sanctification and in our holiness. God, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would grow in our love for Christ and in our love for one another. Pray that that would be the theme throughout this entire year. Lord, may us, may we be a people who are marked by evangelism. Help us to see those who are lost around us and be quick and eager to share with them this good news that sin can be removed through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we pray that as we evangelize, we would see conversions. That there would be those who go from death to life. We pray that in our very own community here, in Westerville, that there would be more faithful churches, more churches that would proclaim your word, that would stand firmly on what your word says and not be swayed by culture. God, we pray that LifePoint Church would proclaim your word faithfully. Lord, we thank you for Maranatha Community Church in Pickerington and their faithfulness. Lord, continue to keep them faithful. Now, Lord, we pray for the world leaders. Lord, think of Afghanistan, or as they are currently being run by the wicked regime of the Taliban. God, we pray that you would overthrow that wicked regime. We pray that righteousness would rule in Afghanistan. God, we pray for Albania and the Prime Minister, Idi Rama. God, grant him faith. Have him rule righteously. Now, Lord, as we go to your word, grant us eyes to see. Help me speak faithfully. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to 2023. It's good to see you. And uh, as many of you perhaps may be doing, is making New Year's resolutions. Maybe that's uh, to be more physically fit in 2023. Maybe that is to do a little bit more reading or be more intentional as a husband or a wife or a father or mother or family, whatever it is. Perhaps maybe it's even career-oriented. Whatever it is, your actions in 2023 are going to say a lot about you. What you value, what you care about, what you're devoted to. And the question this morning is, what will 2023 say about us? What are the things that we're going to be most devoted to? What are the things that we are, as a people are going to pursue most fervently? As we look at today's text, that's, that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying that our actions reflect who we are. Our actions reflect who we are. Therefore, flee idolatry. That's what Paul's getting at in this text. That our actions reflect who we are. Therefore, flee idolatry. Now, because we've, so we've spent some time away from 1 Corinthians, I want to give us a little bit of a refresher. Just to remind us as to what it is we've covered to date. So, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul. It's his second letter to this group of people. So there's a zero Corinthians, so to speak, that we don't have. And so he wrote to them the first time, 
And they responded with some questions. And he also heard a report from Chloe's people. And so he first addressed this report that he heard from Chloe's people. We see that in chapters 1 through 6. And then in chapter 7, he begins to answer the questions that the Corinthians wrote back to him. And there are no less than 10 issues that Paul addresses when he's writing to the Corinthian church here. And so in chapters 1 through 4, we see the first issue, that there was unbiblical divisions within the church. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And he says, no, you should be united in Christ. And then in chapter 5, we see the second issue, where the church was tolerating sexual immorality. And they were proud of it. And Paul says, this shouldn't be so. You should be ashamed and you should address the sexual immorality among you. Then in the first part of chapter 6, we see Paul addressing lawsuits that were taking place within the church. People within the church were were suing each other in the public square. Then in the latter half of chapter 6, he addresses some people who were excusing sexual morality because it took place outside of the body. They said, look, it takes place outside of the body. Like God's more concerned about the soul, so therefore what I do outside of my body doesn't, doesn't matter. Paul says, yes, it does. And then in chapter 7, we see the fifth issue where there's confusion around marriage and singleness. And he addresses that. And in chapters 8 through 10, where we find ourselves, we're on the, the last part of this. Chapters 8 through 10, he addresses what was taking place in the Corinthian church where individuals were prioritizing their own rights above their brothers and sisters in Christ. Saw in chapter 8 with Fu, saw chapter 9 where Paul gives an example of how he laid down rights for the sake of reaching more. And now in chapter 10, we see him addressing this yet again. Now the theme of this entire book, 1 Corinthians, is that the church would be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was going on here in this chapter, just to give us a little bit more context, is that Corinth was a port city. And so it was very transient, lots of people in and out. And so because it was a port city, lots of people in and out, that meant that there were a lot of religious practices that went on. Lots of people come in, establish them, leave, and just there, whatever kind of religious activity you wanted to do, you could find it in Corinth. And so there were lots of temples. And each of these temples had their own practices, often revolving around food and drink, how they would worship their God. And so the Corinthian believers realized, as they said earlier, that hey, we know there's only one true God. And all these other gods, these false gods, they're not really gods. So we actually feel okay going to these temples and participating in these rituals because we know that they're not actually being devoted toward any real God. Because there's only one true God. And so essentially what they were doing is they're treating these temples like restaurants. Hey, I I really like the food over here with with that practice. Why don't we go over to that temple tonight? Well, no, I don't have as much time. Let's go to the one where the practices are a little bit quicker. I just got got to get out and we've got to be a little bit quicker. So so let's go over to, to that temple. Enjoy the food there. And their, their argument was decent in that there really is no other true God. There's only one true and living God. So these practices that are being devoted to these false gods are not being devoted to a real God. But Paul says, hey, what you do, the things that you partake in, says a lot about who you are. So don't go to these temples. He says, don't do what you're doing. And he makes this point in the first 22 verses of chapter 10 in a threefold way. So you can see that in your bulletin. There, there are three points. Here they are. Paul points out that we have a common heritage, common temptations, 
and a common fellowship. Common heritage, common temptations, and a common fellowship. So starting with that first one, common heritage. In verse 1, the Corinthians are reminded of their Israelite forefathers, Moses and Israel. They are being brought out of the land of Egypt. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So they were being led by a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and they passed through the Red Sea. This is what Paul is alluding to. Now, some of you who are keen readers may come up with the question, the fair question, of how is it that Paul can say to the Corinthians, who are Gentiles, that your forefathers were Israel, was Israel? Corinthians are Gentiles. How is it that Paul is calling the Israelite forefathers their forefathers? And here's what he's trying to make the point of, is that Jesus himself was an Israelite. And he was the only Israelite to perfectly fulfill the law. And so now all those, the Corinthians, when they put their faith in him, they receive his heritage, his history. And so his forefathers become theirs. And then he takes on their history, their sinful history. And so Israelites in the Old Testament were God's chosen people. They were within the covenant community. Gentiles were those who were outside of the covenant community. But now Paul can write to Gentiles, can write to the Corinthians, and say, you are Israelites. Your forefathers, Israel. You are now brought into the covenant community because you have placed your faith in Christ, the perfect Israelite, and you are now adopted into him. He swaps places with you. He steps outside of the covenant community and takes the wrath of God. You get to step in and enjoy the rewards of his perfect righteousness. And so Paul continues his argument, and he says that they were all baptized into Moses. It can seem like a strange phrase. They're baptized in the cloud, and they're baptized in the sea. And so what Paul is saying is that the Israelites, they were united to God through Moses. Moses was the, the mediator that God used to deliver his people from bondage to freedom. And as they were going through the Red Sea, they had water on each side, and they had a a cloud above them, and Moses was leading them through. Behind them was death, and ahead of them was freedom. Some pretty cool imagery, if, if you think about it. So they're going through the Red Sea. They're being baptized into Moses, into the mediator that God has provided. And he says that all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual drink. He's referring to after they came through the Red Sea, now, in the wilderness, God is providing for them. And he sends manna to come down from the sky. We see this in Exodus 16. And he provides water for them from a rock that was struck in Exodus 17. And from that rock, that rock that was struck, came water. Came a life source for the people of God. Yet, they experienced all these wonderful things. He's saying that your forefathers are Israelites. They went through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. They were following Yahweh with Moses as their leader, as their mediator. They even received bread that came down from heaven, and they received water that came out of a rock. They experienced some incredible things. And then we see verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. And so despite all the blessings, despite all the miraculous things that the Israelites had experienced, 
they still rejected God and went after other things. This is called idolatry. Anytime you're devoted to something more than you're devoted to God, whenever that thing usurps the Lord Jesus Christ, that becomes your idol. That is now idolatry. It says even though they experienced all of these incredible things, they still rejected God and went after other things. And Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to do that. He's saying there are issues in this church, and I don't want you to go the same way as your forefathers. Now don't forget, in verse 4, he called that rock, calls that spiritual rock, Christ. Now this, this, is, this is important for us. So just as that rock was struck so that God's chosen people, Israel, can receive water that sustains their life, so also Christ was struck so that we who call on him may receive life. Paul's view of this rock is foreshadowing and is him pointing out that just as the Israelites rejected God's provision through a rock, now we see that Paul saying that Christ is this rock is prefiguring Israel's later rejection of God's provision of a Messiah who is called the cornerstone. Another rock imagery. So they rejected the rock that provided water in the Old Testament, and now they're rejecting the cornerstone, the other way that God has provided life for them. And it's interesting to note also that while on the cross, when Jesus was being struck, when he was carrying the sins of his people, when he was, being, when he was receiving the wrath of God, one of the soldiers took a spear to his side. And what came out? Blood and water. And so we see again this rock, water coming forth. But it's not water to sustain you physically. It's water to sustain your soul so that you may live eternally. Paul wants the Corinthians to be self-controlled and disciplined so that they would not go after these idols, would not go after other things. He wants them to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. That Israel experienced all kinds of incredible things, and they still went astray. He says, you Corinthians, you've experienced some great things now. Don't follow the path of your forefathers. Stay focused. Stay self-disciplined and self-controlled on Christ. One commentary pointed it out this way. If you look at the end of chapter 9, you'll see what this commentary is getting at, where it talks about the runners who run, but only one receives the prize, and athletes exercise self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so he points out, this commentary points out, that the logical link between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 is easily discerned. All the runners run, but not all win. So also... All the Israelites experienced the blessings of the Exodus and divine provision, but not all made it to the promised land. And so Christian, we start a new year. We look to what we're going to do in 2023. As we submit those plans to the Lord. Are you exercising self-control and discipline in your pursuit of Christ? Are there things that, that you have held on to that you need to let go? Are we trusting our outward experiences for salvation? Maybe say, well, I said a prayer one time. 
or I was baptized, or I take the Lord's Supper, or I go to church, I give faithfully. I've witnessed God do amazing things. Look, all that is wonderful, and all those are part of the Christian life. But none of those things remove your sin. Rather, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And the Israelites, despite their experience, were tempted to depart from God. They had great outward experiences. They were tempted to depart from God, and some of them did. And today, we too face a similar temptation. So going to 2023, we're going to be tempted every day to choose something other than Christ. Which brings us to our second point. Common temptations. So we see here in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul is saying that these Israelites, they're a cautionary tale. They're an example of what not to do. And cautionary tales are effective learning methods. Many of us were told, were taught not to lie because we were told about the boy who cried wolf. It's effective. When I was in driving school, I remember them showing us some pretty graphic images to show us what distracted driving can lead to. And it was effective. And so cautionary tales can be effective. And Paul is saying that these people, your forefathers, the Israelites, who went after other things after experiencing all these wonderful things, went after other things rather than God, they should serve to you, Corinthians, as a cautionary tale. Don't be like them. Do not desire evil as they did. And so then he lists four things that the Israelites went after. And there are other things that you could put in here, but he's trying to draw a parallel between Israel and the believers in Corinth. Because the believers in Corinth were tempted with each of these things. So the first one you see in verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters. Do not elevate other things above God. Do not have greater devotion to something else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a personal warning for each individual believer in Corinth and here today to ensure that we're not elevating other things above the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's ourselves, whether it's our own happiness, whether it's our family, or career, finances, hobbies, whatever it is, all those things can be good things, but they should never take the, the primary place that Christ should have in our lives. But it also serves as a corporate warning for us as a church to ensure that we are not here to elevate other things above Christ. We gather to worship Him, not to worship us, not to be entertained, not to build a brand or our own personal kingdom. We're here to, to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. It's a warning to us to not bring in new forms of worship that Christ did not prescribe. John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, he gets at this. And he says this, he says, The idea that the church has power to institute and appoint anything or ceremony pertaining to the worship of God other than what Christ himself has instituted is the cause of all the horrible superstitions and idolatry that have arisen in the Christian world. Because when, when the church is tempted to bring in kinds of worship that were not prescribed in the Word of God, that's the cause of all kinds of horrible idolatry that takes place in the Christian world. And so we must be careful to orient our worship always around the way that God has prescribed for us to worship. Not in a way that we think would be innovative and cool and would bring more people in. We want to be faithful to the way that God has told us to worship. 
So the first thing that, that Paul points out there in verse 7 is do not be idolaters. The second thing is he says do not indulge in sexual immorality. Now Paul spent a lot of time on this in chapter 5, 6, and 7, so we don't need to spend as much time here. But basically he's saying don't engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. That's where that gift is to be had and nowhere else. Corinthians were tempted to go outside of that. We said that it's a very transient city. It's a, it's a port city. Think, think like New York City today. So there are plenty of opportunities for the Corinthian believers to engage in this. And some of them were prior to their conversion. And so Paul reminds them again, do not engage in sexual immorality. The third thing that he says is do not put Christ to the test. You see this in verse 9. Now, again, some keen readers here might be confused because he says, do not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And he's referring to their Israelite forefathers. Now, what took place, that, that wilderness, that exodus and then them being in the wilderness, that took place over 1,300 years prior to Christ coming on the scene. So how is it that the Israelite forefathers can put Christ to the test when he hasn't yet come on the scene? Well, something worth noting here is that Paul, again, equates Christ with God. So he says when the Israelites put God to the test by grumbling against him, he was act, they were actually putting Christ to the test as well because he's within the Godhead. The Israelites put him to the test with their impatience regarding his provision. But then now the Corinthians are putting Christ to the test by engaging in idolatrous practices. So just as the Israelites were going after false things and putting other things above God, now the Corinthians are putting other things above God. He equates Christ and, and the Father in, in Yahweh in the Old Testament as equal. You put God to the test, you put Christ to the test, same thing. Christ is God. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. But then he elaborates even more. Verse 10. He says, do not grumble as some of them did. So many Israelites grumbled against God in the wilderness and it led to them not entering the promised land. They were destroyed. See that? Second part of verse 10. They were destroyed by the destroyer. And the Corinthians now were apparently tempted to grumble at Paul's teaching here. So the question is, like, okay, so we're not supposed to grumble. Great. So does that mean we just have to put on a, a happy face all the time, going through some really difficult things? We're supposed to hashtag blessed our entire life here? Does that mean we can't be honest about some of the difficulties that we face? No. But there is a difference between bringing your complaints to God and complaining about God. John Flavel puts it this way. He says, complain to, to God, you may. But to complain of God, you may not. Complaining to God is speaking truthfully about one, your, the present circumstances, and two, about who God is. You can say, God, I am frustrated with this present circumstance. Fill in the blank. And you can be honest about that. Then you can say, God, you are righteous. You are faithful. You are whatever characteristic of God. You can say, I don't see how these two things fit together. Help me understand, God. You're bringing your complaint to him. You're speaking truthfully about how you feel about the current present circumstance, and you're speaking truthfully about who God is. But to complain about God is what the Israelites were doing. They were misrepresenting who God was. So let me give you an example of complaining to God. We see this in the scripture. Complaining to God, we see in Psalm 142. 
So verse 1 through 2. You, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But it says this. The psalmist says, With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. So you see the psalmist being very honest with God. Now, complaining about God is misrepresenting who God is. We see an example of this in Numbers 14 with the Israelites where we read, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, God's mediator. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. And so they were making the claim that God delivered them from Egypt just for them to die in the wilderness. And so they were misrepresenting who God was. That's offensive to God. He says, you are now mischaracterizing me. And so he brought judgment upon them. They grumbled against God. They were essentially accusing him of murder. Just to bring them out in the wilderness, just to have them die there. There's a difference between complaining to God, speaking honestly about how you feel about the present circumstance, and speaking honestly about who God is, versus complaining about God. Let's not overlook those differences, especially as we go through a year, which for some of us may be a very difficult year. We don't know what 2023 holds. But know that you can be honest. You can be transparent with the Lord. Speak honestly about your current feelings, but also speak honestly about who God is. But then verse 11 through 12, Paul points out that no one is immune from falling into sin. He says, look, now these things, they happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember, Israel experienced all these wonderful things, and they still fell. So if you think that you're able to withstand temptation, I would encourage you, don't go down that road. If you think that you're able to withstand the temptation, you're likely headed for a fall. So Christian, don't knowingly and willingly put yourself under temptation. Don't think more highly than you ought. You're not as strong as you think you are. Then he says in verse 13, that when you are tempted... This is the famous verse, when you are tempted, you can remember that every temptation someone else can relate to. Your experience isn't actually unique. I know that we love to think that we're so unique, especially in our Western culture. But every temptation you experience, someone else can relate to. Might not be the exact combination of all your experiences, but someone can relate to every temptation that you have gone through. And we know this that God is faithful. And with every single one of those temptations, he will provide a way of escape. He's faithful to do it. The question isn't whether or not the way of escape is there. The question, more often than not, is whether or not we will take it. So we will face temptations of various kinds, but God is faithful to provide a way out. So as we head into 2023, let's consider what ways of escape did we overlook or ignore in 2022? Let's confess those to God. Let's confess them today. Let's ask him for the strength to, to take that way of escape the next time we're tempted. So we've seen a common heritage, we've seen common temptations, and now we see a common fellowship. And so in verse 14, this is Paul's main point. 
This is what he's getting at in, in this whole chapter. He says, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. When we say idolatry, we're talking about devotion to something else at a higher level than your devotion to God. He says, flee from that. Have nothing to do with it. Then he gives these reasons for why to flee idolatry. Look in verse, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18 here. And, and the reason that he's getting at is that it implies fellowship. When we associate with some, some practices that might look like idolatrous practices, when the Corinthians were doing that, it implies their fellowship with that thing. When we act in a way that shows that we may perhaps be more devoted to something else other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it implies our fellowship with that thing rather than our fellowship with Christ. And so Paul offers two examples to get at this. The first one is a New Testament example, the Lord's Supper. See this in verses 16 and 17. Now that word participation, that word is koinonia, which means fellow or participant. It implies fellowship. We see this in, in 1 Corinthians 1.9. Paul earlier uses the same word when he's talking to the Corinthians when we read, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, the koinonia, of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Christian, when, when we drink the cup, when we, as we get ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, when we drink the cup, we are saying we are participating, we have fellowship with Christ's blood. We are trusting that to remove all of our sin. Not our own practices, not our own sacrifices, not our own devotion. We are trusting Christ and what he has done, his shed blood, to remove our sin. And then... When we eat the bread, we are saying we, are, we have fellowship with Christ's body. First with his church, the body of Christ, but also we're trusting in, in his perfect life to provide us with the righteousness that we need to be right. So we need our sin washed away, but then we also need a perfect righteousness imputed to us. And we participate in the Lord's Supper. We're saying we trust Christ for both of those. Through him and him alone. And, and as Paul says in verse 17, Participating in the Lord's Supper, it makes us, many individuals here in this one room, it makes us one. It says that we are collectively saying that we participate in the one body of Jesus Christ. And then he offers an Old Testament example. He talks about altar sacrifices. We won't get into much detail here. But he's essentially saying that those who ate those sacrifices were identifying with Yahweh. So he points out that the, the the religious practices that you participate in says something about who you have fellowship with. So don't treat these temples as restaurants. Every time you go to one, it's implying that you have fellowship with that demon, that false god. Because I don't want you to be participants with them. So what's he getting at? Verse 19, he says, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now he addressed this in, in 1 Corinthians 8, just a couple chapters ago. In verse 4, he said, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So Paul knew that. The Corinthian church knew that. So he says, what am, I, what am I implying? That an idol is something? He says, no. I imply, verse 20, that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So these aren't true gods. These are spiritual forces that are trying to lead you away from worshiping the true and living God. These idols are not true gods, but they do have demonic influence. One commentary points out that 
Here, Paul clarifies that the idols themselves do not have any valid spiritual reality and do not represent actual gods. But there is a spiritual reality behind them in that they have been created at the instigation of demons posing as gods. And those worshiping them worship those demons. Not everything religious, not everything that's supernatural is from God. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers. We recognize that there are demonic powers around us. So Paul's saying, do not participate in any of those things because it shows that you have fellowship with them rather than fellowship with the true and living God. If we're to take, as Paul argues, 2 Corinthians, if we're to take every thought captive to obey Christ, how much more every action? Everything that we do implies fellowship to something. The question is, who is it fellowship to? He further makes his point in verse 21 and 22. He says, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He says, look, you cannot have fellowship with Christ and with demons. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And so if you're following Christ, you are not following the influence of demons. Those of us who, who live here in Columbus, we recognize that we are not the only largish city here in the state. There's also Cleveland up north, and there's Cincinnati in the south. And it's real easy to get to both of those cities. All you have to do is hop on I-71. If you want to go to Cleveland, I-71 north. If you want to go to Cincinnati, I-71 south. You cannot hop on I-71 north and say, I'm going to Cincinnati. It will not work for you. You might think you're going to Cincinnati, but you will not end up in Cincinnati. In the same way, we cannot follow Christ and follow anything else. We can't serve two masters. So if we're following after Christ, then we must avoid the, the practices and the associations that come with following after something other than Christ. We can't follow Christ and engage in unrepentant sin. We are all sinners. The question isn't whether or not you sin. We all do. The question is, what are you doing with that sin? Are you fighting it? Because that's a sign of a Christian. Or are you embracing it? If so, that's a sign of idolatry. Brothers and sisters, Paul is telling the Corinthians, and I'm telling you today, do not associate with idolatry. We are tempted to engage in the things of the world because they look appealing. We're in the flesh. But we must fight against sin. Don't think because you've sinned, all of a sudden, you're no longer a Christian. What do you do with that sin? That's the question. Our actions communicate fellowship. Most of us, I, I submit, I, I recognize this passage, most of us are not looking to go to a mosque or a Buddhist temple to go enjoy some of the food there. That's just probably not a temptation for most of us in this room. However, there will be moments in 2023 where there will be a fork in the road, and you'll have to make a decision. This way shows that I am associated and in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This way shows that I'm devoted to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those moments come up, I'm pleading with you, choose the Lord Jesus Christ. Be devoted to him, not to something else. Many of us 
this illustration is going to land with some people, it's not going to land with others, and I just recognize that's a risk. Many of us watched the game last night, and we recognize that there was two teams on the field, and one, based off their jersey, was trying to take the ball a certain direction, and the others, based off their jersey, trying to take the ball a different direction. I'm referring to a football game, just in case anybody is curious. And we recognize that their actions on the field were very dependent on the jersey that they were wearing. The same goes for us. Our actions are very dependent, and they speak volumes as to who we are associated with. If you are a Christian, be completely devoted to Christ. If you fall, if you find that you have fallen or that you've gone after other things, then recognize that there is only one who lived a perfectly devoted life, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you call on him, your sins will be forgiven. It's a consistent practice of Christians that we consistently go back to him asking for forgiveness, trusting that he is faithful and just to forgive. But if you're not a Christian, the question that I have for you is what is your highest devotion? And can that thing remove your sin? You will be held accountable for whatever your highest devotion is. I would ask you to consider Christ, who alone lived a life of perfect devotion. Don't reject him like the Israelites in the wilderness did. Not all of them, even though they experienced amazing things, not all of them made it to that promised land of rest. But you can. That eternal rest awaits all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for the forgiveness of their sin through him. Call on him today. Call on the rock who was struck so that you may have life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for caring for us and thank you for providing a rock to be struck so that we may have life despite our idolatry where we've all fallen short. We've all engaged in idolatry. We've all been devoted to other things rather than you. God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make those things aware to us. As we go about this year, that we would fight against sin, that we'd fight against idolatry, and that Christ would be magnified through us as we do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.